Good morning and welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are joining us online or with us in person, or even watching this at some later date, we are excited to worship with you this morning. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. No matter where you're watching from, we are glad you're here with us. At Dayspring, we believe that nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just exploring, or maybe you walked away and are reconsidering. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. And we would love nothing more than to walk with you. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, please explore our website at dsf.church. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. For today's service, you can find study questions in the resources section of our website. And now, let's join our service already in progress. Good morning. It is Mother's Day. Yeah. If you're a mother, happy Mother's Day. Um, bye, Mom. I love you. You know, Mother's Day is, is one of those celebration days where, where we get to celebrate mothers, and um, it's different for all of us, right? Some of us are, are going to do probably what I'm, like what I'm going to do. You're going to go visit your mother. You're maybe going to give her a call. You're going to have a conversation with her that expresses your appreciation for all the love and care that she's given you and your family and her life. But for some, uh, Mother's Day may be sort of a, a harder day, a day of struggle or sadness, because Mother's Day is just another day taking care of an aging mother who is ill or um, in the late stages of Alzheimer's. Or for still others, it may be a day of, of, well, pain as you're remembering memories of your mother that, that are, you know, bring up painful memories about abuse or neglect or other things. Um, whether it's good or bad, we can't deny the fact that mothers leave an indelible mark on our lives, right? From the very beginning, they have such a huge influence on us. In fact, from our mothers and, and really our fathers as well, we get our you know, genetic makeup, right? We inherit our eyes, our, the tone of our skin, the color of our hair, um, whether or not you're going to be prematurely bald. Um, I hear that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> But we inherit all of those things from our families. And, you know, from early ages, you can probably remember somebody saying, you know, you look just like your father when he was your age or just like your mother when she was your age, right? And at the time, if you were like me, you probably didn't really appreciate that all that, all that much. Um, but as we age, and if we're honest with ourselves, we end up reluctantly having to agree with that. Because when we start to look in the mirror, we see our parents staring back at us in that mirror. And physically, we can recognize the similarities. And, as, you know, you might look at a family photo where you're standing next to your mom or your dad, and the similarities are so obvious, it's just, it, it's impossible to ignore the fact that you, you two are related. You're their, their son or daughter, right? You know, 
this inheritance of our physical and our, our uh, genetic part of a who we are is, is just nature. It's, it's unavoidable. We, we get it. And to a large extent, our attitudes and our behaviors are also inherited from our parents in a largely similar way. You see, uh, that influence that our mothers and fathers have on us starts at such an early age because from a very early age, from Graham's age, we're observing our parents and their behavior and their attitudes as we learn and try to figure out what does it mean to live in this life, right? And so as we do this, we, we continue to do it all throughout childhood, throughout adolescence, throughout adulthood. Um, we do it so subconsciously that frequently you don't even realize where you got a behavior from. You don't even recognize it. You do it all the time. And then one moment when you're, you know, 32 or 27 or 44, whatever it may be, all of a sudden something you've done all, all the time conjures up a memory of your parents and you realize, <gasps> in shock, with a little bit of pride and maybe a little bit of disgust, I've become my father or you've become your mother, right? You realize it. It's just unavoidable how that works. Now, the thing about this is, is again, it's just part of human nature. It's a part of what it means to live as a human being and to have a mother and a father. And today's Mother's Day message isn't really a standard Mother's Day message, if, as you might think of it. Um, it's one more discussion around the essential beliefs that we have as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as men and women who devote our lives to what God teaches in his word. And it's a study on human nature, on humanity. And as we look at this study on humanity, um, there's all kinds of places we could go in the Bible. But um, the best place to start with anything, really, especially in the Bible, is at the beginning, as you might have thought. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible on your lap, turn there. Uh, we're going to begin reading in chapter, 20, uh, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 26. Ready? Genesis 1, chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and all of the animals that scurry along the ground. Now, right away, it's pretty easy to see that to be made or to be human is to be made in the image of God. That's pretty clear right away. It says three times in two short verses that God created man and woman to be created in his image. And so our first point straight away is really just the simple, obvious point from this passage, and that is we were created in God's image. So that's simple. We're all done. No, what does it mean to be created in God's image is probably what you're thinking, right? What, what does it mean to be created in God's image? And honestly, to, to continue that discussion or to have that understanding, I think it's good to start with what we aren't when it says that we are created in God's image. 
And just a few verses away from here in chapter 2, verse 7, we get a little bit better description of just exactly how God created Adam and Eve. Here's, here's what it says about when God created Adam. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, right off the bat, in the discussion of what does it mean to be made in the image of God, this is a reminder of at least two things. First, it's a reminder that we are not God. We are God's creation. Being made from dust means that we are formed from the same material as the rest of God's creation, so to speak. To be made in the image of God means that we are merely reflecting God's image, not that we are God. We aren't little gods. We don't have divine powers or, or divine nature in that way, right? What we are is we are a reflection. To be made in God's image is to reflect him the same way that your reflection looks back at you when you look in the mirror. And just like your reflection that looks back at you in the mirror is a reflection of who you are, it's only a limited part of who you are. It's not all of who you are. It can't, it can't tell everything about you. It's two-dimensional, but it can show, you know, the color of your skin, the, the, the blueness of the pants that you're wearing. Whatever it is, it is reflecting what it is, what you are. And so God created human beings to be a reflection of who he is. Now, secondly, not only are we not God, but God is the source of all life. You see, when God breathed his breath of life into humans, the Hebrew in this says spirit. So when God breathed his spirit into us, he decided that human beings would be like him in that they would be made of, he'd be created, they'd be made of the same material the rest of God's creation is made of, but they would also be spiritual beings. So at the irreducible minimum of what does it mean to be made in the, creation, in the image of God, it means that you and I are, are bodies, obviously, right? We all know this. But we're also spiritual. We are body and spirit. And in, in both of those items, that's the irreducible minimum. Now, God has also created us to reflect his image in many other ways, right? He's made us to reflect his image in our, ability, in our abilities and our capacities to live with one another. So, for example, being created in the image of God structurally means that we are designed to be like him in many ways. So structurally, you and I are rational beings. We're emotional beings. We're psychological beings, right? Because of our rationale, we have the ability to do certain things that God designed us to do and experience things. Now, God is all-knowing, but you and I aren't all-knowing. But being rational, we have the capacity for knowledge to grow and to learn, right? We can explore abstract concepts. We can use logic. We can perform incredibly complex mathematics and, and perform scientific research. All of these things come back to our rational abilities that God gave us as a reflection of his own unlimited knowledge and wisdom. You see? We are also enabled to learn languages, empathize with one another, communicate with one another in a way that's actually meaningful through this rational ability. Now, we're also emotional beings. 
the experience of emotions is something that, that God has given us to understand and interpret our world. And God himself also, throughout Scripture, has shown himself to experience emotions. You see, in that experience, God is, ang- God is often shown to be angered or to be grieved and saddened by injustices that are perpetrated by his people. You see, in Genesis 6-6, just a few chapters away from here, God is observing the extent of human wickedness that comes after the fall. And in that, it simply says, and God's heart was broken. His heart was broken at the evil and at the wickedness that it extended in the world. You see, when you and I experience uh, righteous anger or, or sadness or are troubled in our hearts because of some injustice, some, someone being uh, victimized in a way that, that is, uh, just strikes against the core of what you believe and who you are, that's, I believe, the nature of God in us. You see, we experience that, that uh, dissatisfaction and that, that turmoil, that heartbreak over those same kinds of situations that break God's heart. Now, functionally speaking, God also has created us with a certain amount of moral responsibility and volition, some free will, you might say, right? (coughs) Excuse me. He has created us to partner with him in his work. And in so doing, in this verse here, in in verse 26, he connects being created in his image to be like him with reigning over the fish of the sea and, and and a delegation of a responsibility to care for his creation. You see, the delegation of authority over God's precious creation is an incredible responsibility. So not only has God given us the capacity to think rationally and and given us the capacity to experience the world through how our emotions respond to it, he's also given us the freedom to, to take action on his behalf to care for his precious creation. It's in the combination of our capacity, excuse me, it's in the combination of our capacity of intellectual capacities and our freedom to do and act as as we will that God gives us the responsibility to join him in caring for his creation. With knowledge and freedom, we are morally and responsibly, morally responsible for how we choose to live and act and behave. It's in the freedom that we reflect the image of God. You see, to the degree that our behaviors and our actions reflect the image of God is is to the degree that we are living into God's intent for how human beings ought to live. Now, all of this up to this point has kind of been just a, a rough guideline of what it means with the nuts and bolts to be made in the image of God. And all of this, you know, functional and structural portion of who we are as beings made in the image of God um, really comes down to why are we here? What's the purpose? These capacities support something far more significant, right? And I believe that what they support that's far more significant is right in the middle of this chapter in verse 27 where it says, so God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. You see, it's clear that God's purpose for our lives is to live in loving relationships with him and with others. 
So relationally speaking, we are made in God's image with the capacity for love. With the capacity for love. Whatever could be said about what it means to be made in the image of God, all that we could say about our rationale, about our emotional abilities, and our emotional intelligence, about our, our rational intelligence, about everything that we can do and live and say, all of it is made for one supporting purpose. Without it, we can't love. They all build upon each other to make engaging and genuine relationships possible. You see, if we don't know how to think and to act in, in ways that help us make decisions, we won't ever be able to learn the languages that are necessary to communicate with each other in meaningful ways. We can't engage in that. If I don't have the rational and emotional intelligence to be able to step into your condition and sympathize and empathize with who you are, we will never build the bonds of friendship. Those relationships will be hindered. You see, these capacities are made primarily for us to be able to live in loving relationships with God and with other people. That's the primary purpose. It doesn't, it doesn't go beyond that anymore. That's the biggest purpose there is. And it's tied to the core of who we are and why we are here, and it's tied to the core of who God is. Now, 1 John 4.16 tells us that God is love. God is love. That is, the, that is what he is. I almost said it's what he's made of, but he's not made. <laughs> God is the essence of love. And it says, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. All of the capacities, all of what it means to be made in the image of God, build towards and support our capacity to love and engage in genuine relationships with God and with others. When we love and care for one another, we reflect the essential nature of who God is and his character. Our relationship, our relational nature, rather, is perhaps the greatest opportunity we ever have had to reflect God's image and to show the world who he is. It's also our biggest failure. It's our biggest failure because, you know, the, the situation in the garden that is depicted in chapters 1 and 2 is beautiful with Adam and Eve having uninhibited access to God. And they walked with him and they had a relationship with him that is, that is far closer than any of us have ever experienced. And that didn't last very long. In fact, it only lasted until chapter 3. <laughs> Three chapters into the history of man in the Bible, and things are already come off the rails. Let's read there. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals, the, all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. You can almost hear her say, Silly, right? Sorry. Um, the woman replied, It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. The serpent, uh, you, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Let's pause here. We're going to finish through, through verse 7, but let's pause just for a second. 
the first thing that we should notice is that sin and temptation come into the equation through lies and dishonesty. The serpent takes God's own words and twists them until they're no longer true, but they still have this grain of truth in them, right? He says, he he clearly misrepresents the words when he says, any of the trees. God, God told you you can't eat any of the trees, and she corrects him. Well, kind of. She tries to correct him. She doesn't say we can eat of any of the trees. She said, well, um, we can eat of it, only, only the trees in the middle of the garden can we not eat from. But all the other trees we can eat from. But she also goes on to say that, that what they can't eat from, they also shouldn't touch. And God never said don't touch it. At least we don't have that in our, our, our passages before this. He also says you won't die. You can almost hear him say, scoff when he says that. Sure, you won't die, right? Well, that's a lie. That's not true. In fact, we find out in chapters to come that the consequence of this is, in fact, death and separation from God. That's where death comes into our existence as human beings, is in this sin. So it's through this lies and and twisting of God's word that things get started. But let's continue. In verse 6, the woman was convinced She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. She was convinced. You see, in the end, they believed the lie. And I say they because Adam was right there the whole time. So the assumption of whatever she did is he was there with her. They were partners in all of this. So as they were listening to these lies from the enemy, from the devil, from the, sa- the serpent. Um, they were considering them. An interesting observation is if God had said, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, but you can eat through all the other trees everywhere else in the garden, why were they even standing next to that tree in the garden? It's like they wanted to tiptoe around what was forbidden already. They wanted to come to the edge of where they shouldn't be to see what it was like. And I think the serpent cued in on that. He recognized they were already dancing around this forbidden fruit all the time. They hadn't eaten it yet, but they're looking at that tree. They're hanging out around that tree. They've got all this other space they can be. Why are they here? Because they've recognized they're looking for something that they think they're missing out on. And he confirmed that in their doubts by saying, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you will know good from evil. You see, he used that against them. And he used that desire to know something that they hadn't experienced yet. In this point in the garden, they had only experienced good. They had no experience of evil. They may have known what evil was because God told them, do not eat from this fruit, and they would know that disobeying God would be wrong. But they didn't have an experience of evil yet. You see? So Eve, she's looking at this fruit, and she's thinking about it. She thought how nice it looked and and, and how it would taste. She imagines how it would taste and how delicious it would be. And then imagining how it would taste and how delicious it would be, she thinks how good it would be to be like God and to know what God knows. You see, James 1 describes this for us. And in James 1, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has, convi- has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. You see, Adam and Eve had used the free will that God had given them. They had used the intellectual capabilities to understand their world that God had given them. And in so doing, they had made the decision to disobey God. Let's pick back up in verse 7. This is just after they have eaten the fruit. Uh, Where's verse 7? Here it is. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. You see, immediately, immediately, sin has consequences. They discover what it means to know evil in a way that they have never experienced evil before because they now were the perpetrators of that rebellion. Their disobedience to God essentially ended up being a disobedient and a rebellion of God's commands and of God's purpose in our lives. And at the introduction of this place and time where they decided to make this choice, they felt that shame and they experienced sin. Everything changes for the rest of us. It all changes for the rest of us. From this point forward, to be human is to be sinful. To be human is to be sinful from this point forward, and that's kind of our next point. We are sinful. When sin entered the world, it made it so corrupted our, our nature that we can't really get out of it, right? It's a part of that inheritance. <clears throat> it's a part of our inheritance that we have inherited from Adam and Eve going forward. And back to that passage in Genesis 6, 5, where in Genesis 6, 5, God says very simply, It says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. That is the description of what sin does to God's creation. It has so thoroughly corrupted our human nature that we have no experience of what truly goodness might mean, like Adam and Eve did in, in the garden. What we have is an experience of what it means to be human under the shadow of sin. Sin corrupts everything. You see, we can't entirely blame it all on the serpent's lies. It's not just the serpent's lies and Adam and Eve's fault that we're, that we're in this sinful situation, because each one of us have sinned on our own. You see, Romans 5.12 teaches us that we have all sinned, right? It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. Every single one of us have sinned. Each one of us is so corrupt. Sin affects our internal motives, our thoughts, our desires. It affects um, how we interact with our relationships. It, It changes our relationships when when my selfishness bumps up against somebody else's pride and there's a disagreement, it changes everything about who we are. It manifests in our lives in so many different ways 
The Bible describes it incredibly in Galatians 5. Um, let me turn there. In Galatians 5, sin is described in this way. Listen to all of this. Sin, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunk, envy drunkenness, and wild parties. Ephesians 4 uh, adds also the deceitful desires, uh, dishonesty, falsehood, gossip, bitterness, rage. The list goes on and on. And these are just two short passages in Scripture. There is no limit to the record in Scripture of what sin does to damage our ability to love like God loves. The sad part is I don't even need to tell you about what those places are because human history has also proven that. And if you know anything about human history, you know that there are wars and that there are accounts of greed and murder and everything else that you could describe as sin all throughout human history that proves, that proves we are corrupted by this sinful nature, that we have inherited a sin bent on rebellion against God. But it's not all lost. It's not all lost. Why? Because God loves you and I despite our sin. Here's a cool part about this chapter 3 section, about the section in chapter 3. If we were to continue reading in verse 8, which I'm going to right now, you will see that God comes to Adam and Eve immediately after, after their sin in love. Here's what it says. When the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then the Lord called to the man, where are you? You see, God had no need to call to them. He's all-knowing. He already knew where they were hiding. He wasn't surprised by the fact that they were hiding. He wasn't surprised by their sin. He knew about it. He knew about it before it ever happened. And when they heard God coming to look for them, God was coming to look for them in love, to reconnect in that relationship, and it, the sin that they had committed caused them to run and hide from that love. Romans 3, 23 and 24 tells this incredibly well. It says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. And Jesus himself taught this same thing freedom from sin in John 8 verses 31 through 36. He's speaking to a group of disciples, a group of his followers when this account picks up. And here's what it says, verse 31. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you, know, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone what do you mean you will set us free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. You are truly free. 
through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our point. Jesus sets us free. We are free in Jesus. You see, Jesus uses the language of slavery here to to describe the horrors of what it means to live under the influence and control of sin. And then, in that same verse, he proclaims the power to set us free from that. I love how it's described in Romans 5, 6, and 8, where it says, When you were truly and utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time and died for us sinners. When we were utterly helpless, Christ died for us, for you and I. And now it goes on to say, most people wouldn't die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for someone who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. It goes back to that God searching. You see, in Genesis 3, when God is searching for Adam and Eve, that is the first place in the Bible that we see God seeking his people and searching out for his people in love. God is pursuing them. Now, what's more, in Ephesians 3, we learn that Christ's salvation, his sacrifice to set us free, was actually a part of what is called God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose. So what this means is that before God did anything, before any of this ever started, God already knew. He already knew. He already knew that Adam and Eve were going to hang around that tree until the serpent tempted them. And he already knew that, he was going to, that they were going to believe his lies and that they were going to choose to eat that fruit and rebel against him. He already knew that in eating the fruit, they would introduce sin and shame and death into his creation, and that in so doing, they would thoroughly corrupt his image in us, forever changing what it means to be human in this world. He already knew that. And in knowing that in love, because God is love, he set a plan. He set a plan to send his son to die on a cross to take up your sin and my sin, the penalty of our sin in our place. He would pay it for us for free. That was the point. That was God's eternal purpose, that he would free us from our sin in order to reestablish our ability to live in a loving relationship with him and with others. That's the whole point. In addition to this, he knew the specific lies, the specific temptations, the specific behaviors that I have done. He has known the worst of me to my very core. And he said, I love you anyways. He wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve's sin and their rebellion. He's not surprised by my sin, and he's not surprised by yours, though he is aware of all of it. He decided to die and send his son to die in your place, to give you new life, to ensure that you and I have the ability to experience what it means to be made in the image of God when we live and engage in genuine relationships with him and with others. 
So in conclusion, I have just two questions. The first question, I want to read you uh, Romans 10, 9. Uh, Romans 10, 9 says that if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe that today? That's my question. If you haven't yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ yet and experienced that salvation, today is the day. Whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching this on TV, God is pursuing you today. He wants you to experience how he intended for you to live in love with him and others. The second question comes from Galatians 5.1, where it reminds us that it is for freedom that you have been set free. So do not pick up the yoke of slavery again. If you have already accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, are you living in his freedom? Are you living in his power? Because it is for your freedom, your freedom to love, that he has given you this opportunity. Stand firm. Don't let the yoke of slavery burden you again. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, there is so much to be understood about what it means to be human. There is so much to be understood about what your design and and how you created us and all of the intricacies of who we are and what we are. Um, And Lord, we just... We just thank you that you give us the capacity to learn those things and interact with you in those ways. We thank you that you have created us in your image to love and to know love. So Lord, for everyone who is listening to this or hearing this who has not yet understood your love for them personally, Lord, I pray that you would reach out to their heart right now. And if that's you, if you sense the Lord calling you saying, I love you, In spite of all that you've done wrong, I love you. Don't hesitate to respond. Give him your life today. Pray to him and say, Lord, I am a sinner. And I have strayed from your purpose in my life. And I need your grace and your mercy to forgive me. Lord, I believe in Jesus and the love that he gave on the cross and the new life that he gives in his resurrection when you raised him from the dead. Give me a new heart, Lord. And Lord, if you, if you are willing, speak to those also in this room, Lord, that have strayed. And those who are watching this online who have given their faith and trust to you, Lord, but they are not living in your freedom. God, forgive us. Forgive us that we have strayed in such ways that we know displease you and we know take us further away from your purpose in our life. God, help us to remain in that freedom and to not be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, 
thank you for your generosity and commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. We don't expect you to contribute financially. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail one of those old-fashioned checks to us. You would also bless us if you would subscribe, share, and like our live stream wherever you watch it. The social media algorithms use those likes to elevate our social media presence, which means more people hear about the ways Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems. Until next week, may the grace of God bless every aspect of your life.